This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the natural philosopher George Tyson about his new and wonderful book, Analogia, The Emergence of Technology Beyond Programmable Control. Your book, George, is wonderful in the strict sense of the word, a sequence of wonders that entangle the destinies of nature, human beings, and machines. So complex is the entanglement that it's hard to know who is doing what to whom. And so I leave it to you to say how best to approach your book with the three grand projects presented by Leibniz in 1716 to the Russian Tsar Peter the Great, with the last of the Apaches or the voice of the dolphins, with the continuum hypothesis or your own living for three years in the top of a fir tree on the coast of British Columbia. You know, when I started writing this book, people would you know, ask me, explain what I'm doing. And, and really the only way I could explain it was I wanted to write a Western. So <laughs> okay, it, that's really what it is. But it, it does have these two strange sort of seemingly disconnected opposing threads that, that came from my own life. Sort of I had these two, two great interests in my life. The, the first one was boats and boat building and and I came to the northwest coast and became obsessed with the uh, you know I ended up in Alaska as a teenager with how the Russians came to Alaska and and did the reverse of the normal colonial model which is to replace the indigenous technology with imported technology and in Alaska the the Russians adopted the native technology and that that to me just seemed like a, a great model and then uh, through sort of strange accidents of fate I, I ended up getting sucked into the sort of the world of computing history and, and of course that paid infinitely better than, than being a kayak builder so so I sort of got distracted away from uh, you know my kayak building to writing these books about technology in the early history of computing but when you when you look at those so it's really my life was divided half and half between these two interests but they they both go back to the strange same origins that uh, Leibniz the German sort of philosopher and mathematician who who is really he's really sort of the grandfather the grand patron saint of digital computing in the you know, early 18th century, he ended up in the in the hot springs with Peter the Great to basically like rehab to stop drinking alcohol and, and drink mineral water for a week. And he had these two projects he tried to sort of sell to the Tsar. And one of them was to build digital computers and take over the world, sort of build a new world that operated on a systematic, what we technically would call a formal system, which of course is the world we live in today and his other project he tried to convince the Tsar to launch a voyage uh, to America from from the Siberian side and find out whether Asia and America were connected or not and the, 
the Tsar went for that project in a big way. That's what launched the, what we call the Bering Expedition. And the Tsar sort of didn't really take an interest in the digital computing. But and here we are in a world where, where those two uh, sort of the world of computing and then the colonization in North America have this point of intersection. So that's sort of, that's where the... Before we get to Leibniz and the Tsar, let's go back to your own early youth, which is extraordinary. I mean, you're the son of the great theoretical physicist, Freeman Dyson, and you're raised in and around the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton in the when in the, in the 1950s, right? Yes, I'm a chi child of the 1950s. So you're a child of the 1950s, and your playmates are, or the people you come to know are, among them, um, Einstein and uh, your father, uh, and your mother is also a extraordinary physicist. Is that right? Uh, no, she was a math mathematical logician. So. And, and actually was in a lot of ways of more influence than my father, but that's we, we can get to that. And then you develop a passion for boat building and kayaks at a very early age. I mean, reading adventure books in the about the Arctic in the stacks of the library at Princeton University. But you don't have a formal, I mean, your education, your Formal education is spotty. In, in the 50s, your father moves out to San Diego to take part in a, the Orion project, which is a, the launching of an immense spaceship. And, and then you go to the University of California, and then you drop out, and you, learn, you, you live on boats on the marina in San Francisco Bay, and then you go up to the Northwest. And that's... So your story is, is as extraordinary as that of Peter the Great of Leibniz. And, and, and then you've also written a, a book on Turing, Turing's Cathedral, on his uh, invention of, of the computer. So that now we can go back with you arriving on the Northwest Coast in, in when, the 1970s? Yes. Yeah, because I wanted to get as far away from Princeton as I, as I could under <laughs> power. Okay. So you're a contrarian in, in a certain way. I mean, you're suspicious of, of uh, received wisdom. Yes, I didn't really know that. I mean, you just sort of take everything for granted. But yeah, I had no, I was a terrible student, um, dropped out of high school. They, by some miracle. I mean, the University of California let me in at 16 without having graduated from high school, which is which truly to their credit. And I didn't, uh, I didn't at all take advantage of it. I, you know, sort of dismissed them too. Was... All right. So the kayak is your passion when you get to British Columbia and the in, in, inland passage, right? I mean, there are thousands of islands up the northwest coast, and and the uh, and you start picking up on the ancient uh, technology of the Aleut Islanders to build a kayak with with a double bow. I mean, explain 
the technology of the kayak and what it attracted you to it. Okay, yeah, but that, it's mysterious how, you know, from, my father was a, and mother were both obsessed with mathematics when they were children, and I had, somehow I just became obsessed with, with kayaks. I built, built my first kayak when I was 12 in New Jersey, but there was nowhere to go. Um, but when I got to British Columbia, which it turns out has, if, it's hard to get an exact number, but there seem to be 40,000 islands in British Columbia. And so if, if you try and, how do you describe that number? I, I describe it as if, if, you, if you sleep on a different island every night, it'll take you 100 years to visit, to visit all those islands. And, and, but if you were, you know, if you imagine there was intelligent design, if there was an intelligent God out there who, who wanted to design the perfect, you know, the best possible kayak, the way, the way you do it would be to make a planet like Earth and then put a string of islands, you know, at the very north end of the planet where the seas are stormy and the, and these islands which are, which are the, they exist the Aleutian Islands it's a string of islands about 1500 miles across and there's an island you know roughly the, the big gaps are 100 or 120 miles so to populate that island so the island has a has a every all all the islands in the chain have the same climate the same weather but if you end up Populating them with people, the people have to be exceptionally good kayak builders to get from one island to the next. They can't just sort of degenerate and stop building kayaks. They keep have, having to build better and better kayaks because they're competing against each other. So, and and people lived in the Aleutian Islands for we know definitely they've lived in these islands for close to ten thousand years. We have good hard evidence. Uh, so that's a long time to keep sort of trying to build a better kayak. So they so they did, and and I realized very quickly if I if I was interested in kayaks, those were the people to learn from. And so you do. And, and what is the marvelous tech? I mean, the, the kayak is they make it out of the skins of sea mammals. Yeah, they're right? basically take, taking animals apart. I mean, their whole life is animals. They're hunt. They're sea hunters. They live in a very rich place. And of course, they came. They came down to your neighborhood too. I mean, they're, they're, it's which you know, ten, twenty years ago was sort of wild speculation, but now it's it's reasonably accepted that that these skin boat building people came down the California coast, and you know, long before the time of the Russians, that the, the uh, evidence we find of very early people in the Channel Islands and places like that were were probably skin boat building people because they because those boats are so seaworthy and effective so they basically would take taking animals apart uh the skeleton skins of the animals and putting them back together uh, as boats and all right so you're following up on on uh, one of leibniz's projects which is the exploration of the northwest coast of america and what's his other project what what is the digital computer I'm, I'm sorry. I know. I know that it's as common. That my my entire life is probably based on it. But I explain the difference between a digital computer and an analog computer. Okay, and that's again where where Leibniz is so 
useful because he explained it in a, in a very beautiful way that that's still about the best way to explain it. That, and of course, you know, his disciple Alan Turing, who, who explained it with with a long paper tape and a machine that reads, you know, marks on the tape. But Leibniz explained it with marbles that you could. He he, in a very prophetic manuscript that, that got no attention, proposed that you could build a computer that would work with black and white marbles that ran down tracks, and the tracks had had gates in them where the uh, where the marble could either fall through a hole or it, it wouldn't. And there's no middle ground. I mean, a marble runs along, and it either it either goes through a gate or it doesn't. It's not like a, a system using liquid or something where half the liquid can go through a valve or and half can go the other way. It's, uh, it's, it's very much what we now accept as a. So what he's talking about are bits that that the marble being either black or white represents either a zero or a one, and he showed that you could do all the functions of uh, arithmetic with such a machine and then made the further big conceptual leap that we didn't didn't really catch up to to the uh, you know 200 years later that that this was equivalent to the functions of binary arithmetic are also equivalent to the functions of logic so he believes that you can sort of make logical thought uh, absolute and he you know, he was a great believer in sort of that, that there would be an ultimate truth, and that, of course, he thought this would be great for government, which which is still what we're trying to figure out today. And what is an analog computer? I mean, the the uh, DNA is digital computing, right? I mean, yes, in the sense that you can always sort of learn from nature because nature gets everywhere first. So in nature, nature uses digital computing in genetics for information storage and error correction, because digital computing is very good for that. So so our, our whole genetic system that we sort of finally understood how it really worked in the 1950s, and it's, again, still changing the world every day, is you know, is a digital system, but nature. But the human brain. Yeah, the brain, and, or even and, the, the, and, and the nervous system are analog. Are analog, right? They don't work in a uh, precise digital way. It's 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 the complexity is not. You know, if you take apart a brain, even the brain of a mouse or a brain of a fruit fly or the the smallest nervous systems we know, you will never find any. Uh, logical digital code. You just will find this, you know, network of connections. This is a very different way of computing, and and of course very effective because it's, it's very robust and it's uh, it doesn't need sort of this you know perfect logical control system that digital computing does. So so nature you know nature uses both, and we uh, you know all I'm doing is just in a certain way I sort of. With my earlier book, Turing's Cathedral, I, you know, I, I spent ten years explaining how we, uh, you know, how we built the digital universe, and now I'm I'm just trying to explain why that that isn't everything. There's an analog world that that you know we can't just leave behind. Oh, in that context, explain what you mean by the 
four epochs so far in the what you call the entangled destinies of human beings, nature and machines. What, what are the four epochs? Yes, so that's a, that's a great generalization. Whenever someone labels something as epochs, you can, I understand. <laughs> okay. Gray zones in between, but but broadly speaking, I view the the you know the history of technology sort of having these falling into four periods. The first one being the pre-industrial, where we. Uh, we only had we had tools, but they were only hand tools. You had tools, and so that's the world that I spent spent much of my life in. That world, just building boats with hand tools. And then the uh, second epoch is the industrial, where we start uh, building tools that are used to build more tools. So we build machine tools that can build uh, more machine tools, and sort of machines start building. Um, building other tools. That's the world that, of course, of the Industrial Revolution and the world that, that Samuel Butler, who's one of the characters, sort of lives in that world, sees that machines are starting to produce other machines. And, and, the and, third, and, and that's nature falling under the mechanical control. Yes. Yeah. That's the, that's the period when we, you know, we really believe we, and it looks like we are, we're going to control nature with these, I mean, we have these, you know, that's the Titanic and the steamships and the, the great mining ventures and so on. We really are taking over the world with machines. Now, the the uh, third epoch is is the epoch we're we're sort of just in the middle of now, or maybe you know, in my view, is we're getting to the end of it. But that's the epoch of self-reproducing technology, where we. Uh, that's the digital world where we, starting with punched cards, I think where we started to uh, build machines that were controlled by codes, and then those codes became self-reproducing in their own way. So that's really what the, the miracle of software is, that we, you know, we have these codes that reproduce themselves. Uh, and it looked for a while like, oh, this is really going to give us control over everything. Everything is going to be... Uh, be able to be controlled by programmable software and then what i'm what i'm arguing is that no sort of nature you know nature has tricks up up her sleeve and it's not that simple that actually the the machines are and software is getting so complicated that it uh, it starts going back to behaving in an analog way that is not programmable and that you know i believe is the the fourth epoch this future where we live in a world of machines that are uh, no longer under uh, strictly programmable control. And you can take that as being either very depressing or, or very promising. So it's sort of up to you. Let's take two quotes out of your book on that point. You, you say that the third law of artificial intelligence states that any system simple enough to be understandable will not be complicated enough to behave intelligently, while any system complicated enough to behave intelligently will be too complicated to understand. I mean, is, is that the idea? I mean, it, it's machine learning. Machines are learning from themselves, but they are using 
human means to do so. It, it, is that right? Yes. And, you know, people argue about this all, all day long over whether... I know they do. You know, AI and, and artificial intelligence and so on. And, and mostly they're talking about uh, domesticated AI, sort of the stuff that, you know, because it's driven by people making and trying to sell products so but personally i'm much more interested my interest is wild ai ai that really evolves on its own and the wild is not sort of built into products i mean that's sort of the difference between you know domesticated animals and and, and wild animals and so the, the the view has been that we while we we're not going to get real ai because we don't you know we don't understand it but there's there's no reason you can't, uh, there's nothing against building something without understanding it. I think that's sort of the stage we're at now. We're building forms of, of AI that we, that we don't understand. And again, some people think that's, you know, that's scary or not a good thing. And I think it's actually, it's just as likely to, uh, to be a good thing. I mean, it's just sort of. Yes. I mean, and then you quote, Leo Szilard, is that the way to pronounce his name? Uh, Szilard, Hungarian, so. He's somebody you also knew, right, as a young man. Well, what was important was, was not Leo Szilard, who's the famous uh, physicist who, who drafted the letter that, that, he wrote the letter that Einstein signed and they sent to Roosevelt warning that, that you could build an atomic bomb, but, but and then spent the rest of his life trying to trying to get rid of nuclear weapons, but it was his partner, his wife, Trudy, who who somehow, I don't, I don't know if she felt sorry for me or she, she just uh, took me under her wing and it, after Leo had died, she would come to uh, my school at regular intervals and, and get me out of school. Like, I don't know how she did it. She had to like, go to the office and sign a, say I had a medical appointment or something because she actually was a doctor. And she'd take me out of school and take me to lunch at this beautiful restaurant in La Jolla, and and we would just would talk. And and she's one of the people who who explained to me that I didn't I didn't need to be a scientist. I mean, every, every there were all these other people. If you're this, if your father is someone like Freeman and your mother is someone like my mother, people are always telling you, oh, you, you know, you must you must want to be a physicist like your dad. And she was the opposite. She sort of explained to me that you know didn't need to be a physicist and she had a uh, she had helped leo write this book called the voice of the dolphins about dolphins sort of taking over the world because humans were doing such a bad job and she, and she gave me that book when i when i was 11 years old and it you know it definitely drove changed the path of my life the idea of the voice of the dolphins it, is that that the dolphin mind is superior to the mind of uh Men? Yes, I mean the, the the brains were larger and they've been around longer than people. So Leo, you know, being a scientist, he concluded they might be more intelligent just because they didn't have technology. Didn't mean they weren't intelligent. And then finally, they they realized that humans are going to destroy the world. So they they you know they convinced the humans to to give up nuclear weapons which which of course is what leo what he was trying to do but people weren't listening to him so he thought well maybe they'll listen to the science fiction story instead 
Yes, but that brings us to the, Leo is also the man that says, talking about universal mind beyond the capacity of human beings to understand. There's a great quote from him in your book, which seems to speak to your point. I mean, Leo Szilard says, a day will come one day in the succession of days when beings, beings who are now latent in our thoughts and hidden in our loins shall stand upon this earth as one stands upon a footstool and shall laugh and reach out their hands amid the stars. Yes, actually, that was it was H.G. Wells who said that. Oh, was that H.G. Wells? But, but Leo Szilard had gone, he had gone to meet H.G. Wells in, in London. He was trying to, you know, get all the help he could to, uh, and then he, of course, you know, J. Edgar Hoover didn't like him, so he, he sort of, he got blacklisted everywhere. But then toward the end of his life, he's sitting in the lobby of a Washington hotel, handing out signed copies of Voices of Dolphins. Right, trying to lobby the politicians. But you, in your travels, you know, at, on the Northwest Coast, you, you spend one summer, I, I think, among whales, right? Orcas? Yes, which are the, you know, they were the largest dolphins on the planet. So, so it was, it was like my childhood dreams had come to life. There I was with the dolphins. Yeah. And, and, but the way that, that whales and orcas, orcas have communicating with one another, explain that because that goes to your point about some sort of universal mind that combines nature, human beings, and machines. Yes. What's puzzling is that we don't understand. I mean, when I, when I went up there, and of course, it was, only, it was only a few years after Trudy gave me that book. I mean, I was, had just turned 17 when I came up to Vancouver and uh, got a job on a boat, and we, had, we were chartered to to go help do research with killer whales. And, and we were carrying hydrophones for scientists who were listening to the, because whale, whales, if, essentially they, they live as if they're plugged into the internet all the time, right? We, we as humans sort of can talk to the, you know, we can talk to whoever's in the room with us, but the way whales communicate with sound in the water, the, the medium is, is completely different. So, you know, whales can communicate over dozens, if not hundreds of miles or, or more. And they, and they both see the world and communicate using sound. So it's as if we could exchange uh, visual images, you know, to, to people in a building down the street or something. It's a completely, it's, it really is like the internet. And, and they have, evolved in that medium for you know for millions and millions of years in very complex social structures so we don't know what's going on but but 50 years ago when i went up there all the scientists believed that well if, if we record these communications uh we'll find the language they must be using language and we'll we'll you know being clever scientists we will decipher it there's no language we can't decipher 
and it's been 50 years and we have you know we have machine ai and supercomputers and everything else and we you know we've done everything we still have we, nobody has found any whale language and my belief this is just my opinion i'm not a scientist but I don't think there needs, why would there be language there? I mean, you know, we evolve language because we can't, I can't send a picture of a cat directly into your brain. I have to, you know, we have to agree on a common language so I can say cat and then you form the image of a cat uh, in, in your brain. If we could just exchange images directly, uh, we, we would never need the language and I think that's what's going on with with whales they're communicating in a, in a completely different way it's not not a symbolic linear language the way we use it I mean McLuhan says something of the same thing when he talks about the shift from print to electronics he describes it as a uh, world of communication of which we actually have no experience Right. So, I mean, it, it and it works, as you say, the internet internet works a little, you know, way similar to, to the internet. Yes, and I think we're going to see that as as human species that we're we're raising, you know, new generations of children who are going to be plugged into these different forms of communication from very early, very very different things, sort of non linguistic communication may may evolve. I mean, I, I, and, and you talk about the, you know, there may be some sort of form of universal mind that the whales know, but we don't yet know. Maybe we never will. But the, the uh, now, now, now talk about the, the mind of a tree. I mean, talk about your living in a tr fir tree in British Columbia for three years. What? persuaded you to do that okay well first of all if, nowadays if you say you lived in a tree for three years in the rainforest everybody assumes you were sort of making some political statement to save the rainforest and, and that i had no i mean you know i like trees but i also i worked in around logging camps and, you know a lot of my friends worked cutting trees down i wasn't trying to save the trees it just was a convenient beautiful place to live so i, I needed a place to live didn't have any money for rent so i built this treehouse 95 feet up in a big douglas fir right pretty much overlooking the city of vancouver if you uh a few years ago i got i got brought to ted the, the fancy conference that moved to vancouver and they, they put me in the fairmont hotel on the downtown waterfront i could see the hill where my treehouse was from my hotel room again this is total disconnect come back you know 45 years later and <laughs> yeah, <different but>, world. <laughs> because you live in I mean you're up there in a treehouse and you and you bring up other kind you, you bring up cedar planks to make a floor and walls between a frame of branches. And then but how does a tree sway in a big wind? I mean it must be disconcerting. Yeah, it sways a lot. Like the displacement would be in a good winter gale would be ten or twelve feet, and you you spent time on boats. I mean, you you know that the whatever the motion on a boat is, it's 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 periodic. It's a it's a combination of 
you know, of different frequencies. There's a there's a pitch frequency. There's a roll frequency. There's a frequency of the swell. There's a frequency of the waves. But the the boat has a more or less you know of a frequency. Whereas the motion at the top of a tree is is absolutely chaotic. I mean, the top of that tree is just whipping around with no predictability at all. There's no so it's a very very different feeling from being on a boat. Um, but you get like being on a boat, you get used to it. And, yeah, you also point out that the when the weather gets really cold, if you empty a cup of tea at ninety five feet, it freezes before it hits the ground. Right. It was because you <laughs> get these Arctic outflow winds. So anyway, it was absolutely wonderful three years of my life living up there. Well, I tell you, this is this is a truly wonderful book. George, I mean, because you meet all kinds of interesting phenomena, but you also meet all kinds of interesting people in in different points in time. I mean, you, you can connect with Peter the Great, but you can also connect with Edward Teller. You also connect with, with um, Samuel Butler and with the 10,000-year elute kayakers and there's these three young young boys who are in there yeah talk about the measurement how you figured out your life in time from the rings of a tree so yeah so i split the cedar to build my house out of which was a, a a drift log that actually we almost hit with this boat I was working on. But we, anyway, so when I split apart the log, then I used some of those split boards to panel the inside of the house and lying in bed. I mean, I didn't, you know, there was no, I had no electric light or I would, I mean, like reading Captain Cook's journals by a coal oil lamp. So I, I counted the rings on one board and it was, it was roughly a hundred. 100 rings per inch so in a seven inch board went back 700 years and on that scale I, mean, I was 25 years old my life was only one quarter of an inch you could count back to you know when captain cook had arrived when the russians had arrived and, uh, it, so he gives you this incredible sense of, of time and that's the digit analog digital thing where it Tree, which is this completely analog being, nonetheless is counting the years digitally one by one. It's a completely analog being. That's the point. It's like a human nervous system. Now we're getting good, you know, scientific evidence that this is really true. That the that the trees are communicating through their uh, root networks with each other. Which is which living there for three years. Of course, I I had those ideas, but they were just wild, crazy ideas. And now that they're, they're actually being supported by by science i've just got to say george you know this is a truly wonderful book i mean you write so well that, that it that it it uh, makes it all come closer to the poetry than prose and the uh, thank you very very much for speaking with us today 
thank you for having me. And, and if, if any of your listeners are in the Bay Area, go visit Fort Ross, which is just this wonderful restoration of the, the Russian settlement on the California coast. It's just as if they had, they, you know, you can just go see it as if they've gone out for tea and not come back. Thank you again very much. We've been speaking today with George Dyson about his new and marvelous book, Analogia, subtitle, The Emergence of Technology Beyond Programmable, Programmable Control. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.